Greetings, fellow travelers on this path. Hello. <laughs> so I've been so impressed over the years with my colleague Larry's Dharma talks and how lovely they are typed out and you can't see, but they've got colored lines on them and <laughs> yellow and red and bold black. And I thought, you know, I usually come in with bits of scraps of paper handwritten. I'm going to try that technique. <laughs> It took me two hours to do these three pages. And I realized that, that probably this, that having it all neatly typed out and color-coded wasn't my particular way. <laughs> Which is why I whispered over there, oh, we better not, um, we better not tape this talk because it's only 15 minutes worth. <laughs> So we'll see. <laughs> I actually wanted to begin with a story that I have quite a lot of remorse around. And I was in my um, late 20s or early 30s with a, a woman that I was traveling with, and we were in San Diego. And we were, we went to us, we were in some kind of little mall and there was a, a store, one of those world market stores that imports beautiful things from India and Africa. And I think the woman, it felt like a newish store, it was a woman-owned store. And... There was this African hanging of birds and um, bird-like animals. And I rolled it up and put it in my bag and walked out of the store. And the woman actually came after us and said, because my friend had also stolen something, she said, have you seen those two pieces of material, you know, hangings? They're, I can't find them. And we were both, no, no, we haven't. And I say that because as I was reading the opening of my talk, which says, you are one of the miracles of creation. Address yourself with respect and wonder. It's Dr. Trimmer. I thought about some of you and how it might be if you read, if you heard that. And that sometimes it's so easy in a situation like this with these beautiful pictures of the Buddhas and of, of um, this great serene being and of Tara, that, that as we talk about the miracle of creation, that we somehow are projected as these pure awakened beings, you know, and that when we talk about the miracle of creation, we're talking about the purity of our being. And so that somehow it isn't related to you. And so I want to say that we are both. We are beings like myself who stole, and we are miracles of creation. So in saying this, I, I, I send uh, um, a prayer to this woman that she might forgive me 
and in acknowledging the places where I have acted out of my wounds and defenses, not knowing, just not seeing, being caught. I call in with us this capacity also to connect to ourselves as miracles of creation. There's an excerpt from Oak Chesar who says, We are pieces of ancient earth, bits of story soaked in intellect and dirt. I like that. <laughs> that combination of intellect and dirt. And this is what Pablo, Pablo Neruda says. He says, And I, infinitesimal being, drunk with the starry void, likeness, image of mystery, felt myself a pure part of the abyss, I wheeled with the stars and my heart broke loose on the wind. I wheeled with the stars and my heart broke loose on the wind. This invitation to see ourselves as wheeling with the stars and with our hearts breaking loose includes all of us. It isn't about rejecting certain parts of us, but rather saying, we are deeply imperfect. We are. Each and every single one of us here are imperfect. And you might not see our imperfection, <laughs> but I can promise you, sitting from this side of the room, it's an accurate description to say, all three of us, and I'm sure my cohorts would nod, that we're imperfect. And that that imperfection doesn't ex exclude us from being part of the miracle of creation. And that it doesn't exclude us from also acknowledging that these beings who surround us are actually not so far from our hearts. That actually they represent our hearts. And that so much of this practice is rediscovering what we know intuitively and what brought us here, that intuition that we are these expressions of mystery, of unconditional love and the capacity to see clearly, of generosity and truthfulness and of infinite courage. We are in this exploration as Mary Oliver says, and I think I read it, I'm not sure when, in these days, that we are coming home to ourselves to see ourselves truly in all our aspects. And that getting lost is about getting lost in one side or the other. One side of getting lost is identifying with these beautiful beings and seeing ourselves only as them, and it's called spiritual bypass, where we look at only what is beautiful and we don't look at what is difficult. And we know that in our communities. Our spiritual communities are not so great at looking at our own, for those of us who are white, at looking at our own racism. And for those of us who are fully able-bodied, at looking at the places where we perpetuate discrimination against those who aren't able-bodied. Or those of us who aren't Jews still holding because that's the nature of this complex world anti-Semitism. Or the ways that even though we are queer, there might still be sexism in our room. And this calling we have 
is to hold the both end. It is to hold this incredible capacity of courage and faith to look at what is difficult. And so I wanted to um, look again at the, the places that we describe as difficult or challenging or um, the places where we forget our magnificence. And just to name it again, that so much of the journey we're on is naming this passage, it feels like a passage, the passage from feeling like a personal failure to acknowledging a social and cultural reality. So the Buddha said, and we talked about this earlier today, that when he looked at the very beginning of life, and it wasn't just um, the... uh, I don't know, how long do scientists say human beings have been alive? however long that is, the Buddha went much further. He went like eons and eons and eons and eons. And he said he had this incredible capacity to see everything. And he saw and he said, I see through all manifestations of life, of cosmoses, of eons, of galaxies, and I cannot find a beginning to ignorance. It is there from the very beginning. And that's, yeah, it's, and that's, that's what we've inherited. And just to name that that ignorance has been passed on from generation to generation to generation through our DNA and has come to us. And so, um, When we acknowledge the reality of homophobia, racism, sexism, depression, anxiety, um, all the expressions of oppression, we're acknowledging the social expressions of ignorance that the Buddha talked about that gets communicated generationally. And I think every retreat, I name this, And I name it over and over again because we don't name it and we don't acknowledge what we've inherited. This is what we're carrying, you know? And it's weighty. And... Then I just want to talk about the impact of that as a, in a couple of personal experiences. And we all have these personal experiences. They probably, they are different for each one of us. I grew up in South Africa and my parents were very involved in the anti-apartheid struggle. And when I was nine years old, about 2 a.m. in the morning, I heard this big knocking on the door. And that wasn't unusual because uh, we had a lot of police raids. Police would come in at any time and do these searches. And so I went, I was the first one up, and I went and opened the door, and there were these two big policemen there, Afrikaner policemen, and they said, is Mrs. Berman here? And, um, and I said, yeah, my dad had already been arrested. And they came in, and my mom was in her nighty, and she'd heard, she'd heard the knocking, and they came up to her, and they said, Mrs. Berman, you're under arrest. And... Uh, she said, I'd like to go and change. And they followed her into the bedroom and I followed too. And they didn't, they wouldn't give her any privacy and she changed. And they escorted her out of the house. And I watched her walk out and I'm the eldest of three. My sister's 15 months younger, Sandra, and then Terry two years younger. And then 
um, Janet was, um, I think, is four years younger than I am. And I saw my mom's back and these two policemen, and I watched something shut down inside of myself, like this hardening of, okay, now I have to survive without my parents, and I have to take care of my family. That experience is just one of many experiences that we carry as part of the ignorance of living in this world. And that that tool of shutting down and hardening, and I got really hard. And that those moments of stealing are a reflection of that hardness, of shutting down in some way and not caring. That defense was the only defense I knew that was given to me both psychologically and socially. I had no other defense that I knew of other than to get hard and to get um, kind of tight, like I'm going to survive and it was like this and I could feel it in my body and I can feel it still in my body that hardness and contraction. We all have experienced bullying or shaming, physical assault or sexual assault, or the ongoing experiences of not being seen for who we are. And in those experiences, we have called on the defenses that have been given to us because we didn't have any other resources. We have called on shutting down, on shame, on blame, on judgment, on moving into obsession for something rather than as a, as a, a escape from those experiences of addiction, of craving and greed for possessions or things or fame or recognition or perfection in the jobs or art or singing or whatever we do, of envy and jealousy. they all defenses, expressions of ignorance because we, we weren't supported weren't taught, weren't given other resources to work with the reality of our lives. And the miracle, the miracle, is that the love and wisdom inside of us is so strong that in that, in those environments and in those experiences which we've experienced over and over again, we have found ourselves here. That light, can you see, is so strong. Your faith is so strong that it brought you here and it brings us here together in a community. That's why the Buddha and the great teachers like the Dalai Lama and um, Ansung Suki and um, Deepama say our deepest heritage, deeper than ignorance, is love and awareness. It can never be destroyed. It can be covered up, but it can never be destroyed. And that we know that already and that the conditions for love and presence over and over again, if you look at the suttas and where the Buddha talks about, well, what are the conditions for awakening? Are to be in Sangha, listening to the Dharma. Listening to, and I'm talking about that in the most general way, not just the Buddha's Sangha and the Buddha's Dharma, but communities dedicated to healing and liberation and teachings dedicated to healing and liberation. And that is so strong that it's called us here. And then let's acknowledge again our ancestors because that calling has been so strong for them 
that we rest on their shoulders. Those who have struggled and fought for freedom in the country of my birth, those who died for freedom because they had faith in it. And in every part of our history, every one of us here, we stand on the shoulders of those who have come out in that act of faith. And my memory is so awful. What's the, what was that um, nightclub where the, we, Stonewall, we stand, <laughs> <laughs> we stand, we stand, we stand on the courage of mostly those Puerto Rican trans who confronted the police. We stand on their shoulders. We stand on faith, that heritage of faith as well. We have inherited a heritage of ignorance and we also have inherited a heritage of faith and vision and love. And we stand on that as well. And these pictures, though they don't and actually would be nice if they did acknowledge all our cultural and racial and gender expression and non-gender expressions, it would be nice if we had that around us to reflect that back to us instead of some of these more neutral things. But I'm saying the words for that right now, that reflection of that heritage. In, in that then, in that environment of acknowledging the, the, the unrepressible energy of love and presence, we can begin to open up to the dynamic of ignorance that lives inside of us because we know that we have those resources. So part of waking up and waking up to that love is to see clearly, and we talked about it this morning, is to see clearly the dynamic of ignorance inside of us and its faces. And so um, I, wanted, I wanted to give you two different ex- ex- expressions. I finally got that page that gives the nature of consciousness <laughs> from the Abhidharma Anaitis. Just from the sort of beginning, from this very technical aspect, I want to say again, because it's been so helpful for me. And it's funny when you talk about like, you know, when you're having a hard time, what passages do you read? And I have a friend who has, you know, one of those kinds of books like Pema Children's Little Books and Jack Cornfield's Little Prayer Books um, by the Toilet. Do you know those little... (laughs) (laughs) How to, how to have a nice saying to begin your day. And being the aversive type, they kind of make me nauseous. But, <laughs> but this doesn't. So I would like to ask your patience in reading The Nature of Consciousness. So in every moment of consciousness... There is contact. We, we talked about that, the, the visual image coming into the field of the eyes and that image and the sense space of eyes make contact. The feeling of pleasant, unpleasant or neutral. The perception that happens where we perceive the mark of something. Volition, our intention in relationship to that the one-pointedness, the very beginning of our faculty of concentration, life faculty, and attention, that, that, that we, a very basic form of attention, that's there in every moment of consciousness. And then there are some 
um, occasional, initial and sustained application, which is what concentration is, decision, energy, zest and desire. Then there are the 14 unwholesome factors. And the part that I wanted to read to you that's been so profoundly liberating for me is that in every moment when we feel lost in depression or hatred or despair, in that moment of consciousness, there is always delusion and restlessness, shamelessness and fearlessness of wrong. That is to say, there is a misperception of reality, that's what delusion is. In not perceiving reality properly, we do ourselves or others harm. That's what the shamelessness is. There's nothing stopping us from hurting ourselves. So for example, that sense of, I'm no good. The first quality that's present is, I'm not seeing things properly. So I think I'm no good is true. Part of that thinking that continues to be able to manifest is that I'm not stopping myself from hurting myself. There's no fear of doing wrong. And then there's always restlessness there. That is, there isn't any calm to see clearly. It's like Things are disturbed and troubled. And every time we feel greed, wrong view, conceit, hatred, envy, avarice, worry, sloth, torpor, doubt, depression, there is always the delusion and shamelessness and restlessness. And I'm saying that because the single biggest trap for each of us on this path is believing the thoughts that are judging and shaming or lost about ourselves, our experiences, about our communities and life, thinking that they are true when they're not. How do we know if something is true? We know it's true if it has associated with it faith, love, patience, caring, renunciation, truthfulness, equanimity, and the beautiful qualities of the mind. That's how we know if it's true. So, for example, I, um, I moved into a household in March. I shared this in my small group. And since I've been in the house, my chemical sensitivities have gotten really bad. And there is a... There is, um, uh, a roommate who comes from France and is setting up a, a wine bar on Valencia Street, a restaurant and wine bar. And I have talked to her about my chemical sensitivity. And she just doesn't get it. You know, so I'll come down, I'll come down into the kitchen and there'll be this incredible, like atmosphere permeated with scented products. And my initial response is, what the hell is the matter with her? (laughs) And it feels really legitimate to judge her as insensitive and uneducated. I mean, uneducated, yes. Insensitive and uncaring. Like, she must be uncaring. You know, she, and, and that, you know, and that, and that she's, I, I want to say that I think she's nasty, but a little bit. <laughs> And I feel so justified because I feel like, wow, this is like about my health and feeling and, and feeling like I can live my life in some kind of safety, free of the things that trigger such discomfort in my mind and my body. And it's amazing to me to use my Bible and to say, 
Is there love? Or is there aversion? Because if there's aversion, there's delusion. And if there's delusion, it means I am not seeing the situation correctly and clearly and truly. Really? (laughs) How can that be? (laughs) I mean, we like to be right about this kind of stuff, you know? And yet, even though I don't know in that moment of challenging myself what the right perception is, I do know what the path is. And even when I'm resistant to practicing it, because I feel such a truth seeker, the path is to drop the thoughts and storyline and to actually feel the feelings that are part of that thought. And the feeling is a deep disappointment and actually some kind of fear of living where I have no control over my environment and the feeling of vulnerability that comes from it. And they're really uncomfortable feelings. And I didn't want to feel them. And feeling them, and not just having to do it once, but over and over and over again, something begins to open. And as it opens, I see that how I come back to relating and seeing her is different. That she actually has stopped being an enemy and that she has become a friend. And that's the process of healing and transformation where we live in friendship with ourselves because I'm not separating and isolating myself or her but living more in communion. And we find ourselves flipping back and forth and back and forth. And one of the biggest challenges around this, and I'm being so, what's the word that you say when you talk about your personal experiences? Um, Disclosing. I'm disclosing so much because it is insidious the way delusion isolates us, so that I feel I'm the only one in my household suffering. And not only do I feel like I'm the only one, but because I feel separate and isolated, I also feel shame that somehow I shouldn't be feeling the feelings of separation and isolation and judgment and shame. And two of the characteristics of delusion that are always there are that it separates and it isolates so that we feel we are alone. The truth and the reality, and we know this intellectually, is that we're not alone. We're not alone. It is delusion um, dropping this fog over our minds so that we feel we're alone from a misperception of reality. So I wanted, and this delusion, this delusion is not, it doesn't just drop in on those of us who are newer meditators or newer practitioners of faith. (laughs) This is um, something that I've been reading a fair amount because it's so profound. Mother Teresa of Calcutta, who has been put on the fast track to sainthood, was so tormented by doubts about her faith that she felt a hypocrite. Excuse me. It has emerged from a book of her letters to friends and confessors. Shortly after beginning her work in the slums of Calcutta, she wrote to her, to her preceptor, Where is my faith? Even deep down, there is nothing but emptiness and darkness. 
If there be a God, please forgive me. In letters eight years later, she was still expressing such deep longing for God, adding that she felt repulsed, empty, no faith, no love and no zeal. Her smile to the world from her familiar weather-beaten face, she said, was a mask or a cloak. What do I lay before? If there be no God, there can be no soul. If there be no soul, then Jesus, you are not true. She died in 1997 and was beautified. Beautified? Beautified? Beatified. (laughs) In record time, and only six years later, felt abandoned by God from the very start of the work that made her a global figure. And she had she had uh, said, I am told God lives in me, and yet the reality of darkness and coldness and emptiness is so great that nothing touches my soul. I want God with all the power of my soul, and yet between us there is a terrible separation. Her preceptor decided to publish her letters even when she asked that they not be published because he wanted everyone to know that this journey doesn't mean we don't get lost. And it doesn't mean that we don't get powerfully lost. This is what So Bonfu Somme says. Something needs to be broken in order for a new state of grace to be born. It is the natural cycle of our spirit. In this way, we are born and die many times in life. If we are going to achieve our purpose in life, we must be willing to fall out of grace and accept its lessons. When we feel righteous about ourselves or deny our brokenness, We are fighting against the highest states of grace that awaits us. Failure is built into grace. You cannot have one without the other. It's like two sides of a single coin. Everyone who has achieved the state of grace is certain at some point to fall and to have fallen many times before. You know, as I read that, I think about some of the great teachers in our traditions who, like Maizumi Roshi or um, uh, um, um, the other one that Natalie writes about, who, Tatgari Roshi, for example, who have been great practitioners and have found themselves entangled in illicit affairs with women or students. A big falling of grace in those communities. And you know what? It isn't the falling that's really the issue. We are going to fall, and we fall, and we fall, and we fall. I can't tell you the amounts of times that I have woken up in terror. And the first thought is, what is wrong with my practice? That after all these years, there is still terror. The very first thing I wake up in the middle of the night to go to the toilet, the first thing in the morning, and there's that natural aversion and judgment of failure. And then I remember that I am an inheritor of eons of ignorance and that as I open in my practice and practice mindfulness, I am seeing that history and that it is not about uh, failure and it is not 
that that falling into forgetting and that falling into despair is not part of the spiritual practice. It is. What feels most challenging is that we break the silence around it, that we break that sense that we have to lie about it, which is what those great masters got caught in, is that they lied about it. Of course we are going to fall from grace in the ways that we do. Of course we're going to forget. Let's acknowledge that's part of the path. And in the acknowledgement, and this is what's so beautiful about it, in the acknowledgement, something changes. And that sense of separation and isolation and imprisonment in our own failure begins to dissolve. This is something that um, uh, Janet Surrey wrote in The Inquiring Mind. She says, Addiction is often called a disease of isolation. You are as sick as your R-secret. Moving out of shame and self-delusion into the light of awareness and non-separation is essential, not only for survival, but for spiritual health. Sobriety depends on the learned capacity to ask for help, to admit vulnerability, and to call before you take the first drink. There is great and transformative power in learning to reach out to another human being when the momentum of the past and the voracious craving of addiction are calling the addict to take refuge in the substance or addictive behavior. The step of taking refuge in community and relationship is a moment of liberation. So we are naming, we are naming that falling. And then I want to... Um, speak of one last falling because it has, for some, for whatever reason, you know how some things have such an impact on, on impact of you, is um, meeting Ramdas in some early teachers' meetings and thinking, sorry about this, Ramdas. <laughs> you know, wow, you're, you know, I, I really appreciated your book, but you're kind of arrogant. And um, so, anyway, so and and also appreciating him, and then and then, many years later, being at a church in Northampton, where he was wheeled a, a, a year or maybe two years after his stroke. For those of you who don't know, Ramdas had a stroke, and lost the capacity to. Um, he lost his mobility and his speech, and he spent years practicing. Maybe this is why it's, it really has touched me so much. He spent years learning to talk again. And when I was young, I had polio, and I couldn't speak afterwards. And it took me years and years to learn to talk again. So maybe that was the link. Anyway, he came up on... Um, onto the podium at the church in Northampton and he, he spoke very, very slowly and he said when he had his stroke he thought his practice, his spiritual practice, but particularly his master had given up on him. Why would he, such a devoted devotee, be given a stroke? And he went, he fell into an incredible despair. And at one point, at some point, it came to him. This is not about my master forsaking me. This is the gift of my master that I might learn about this experience. 
And isn't it true that every time we have fallen, there has been in our recovery some grace also discovered that challenges that arrogance of invulnerability and asks us to hold what is difficult with this newfound grace. And it is that that also allows us to love. So I want to end with another um, inspiration, which is Leslie Feinbach from Stone Butch Blues. Yet I was so afraid to come out and face the world again. I wondered why I had to choose the opening years of the Reagan administration and the rise of the moral majority to demand the right to be myself. Would they arm villages with torches and stakes and stalk me through the countryside? Would I stand alone, handcuffed, in a precinct cell with no one to turn to if I survived the nightmare? But then I acknowledged that no matter who had been in the White House, it had always been hard for me. Between a rock and a hard place, something told me this lifetime wasn't going to get any easier. I'd already been through a lot, though, and it didn't seem to me it could get much worse. Once again, I couldn't see the road ahead. I was still steering my own course through uncharted waters, relying on constellations that were not fixed. I wished there was someone somewhere I could ask, what should I do? But no person existed in my world. I was the only expert on living my own life, the only person I could turn to for answers. And I feel like I really want to honor all those who are courageous enough to come out before us when they feel they didn't have community and that they could only rely on themselves. And there's both something incredibly beautiful about that because when it really comes to it, we can rely on ourselves because we are the living carriers of resilience and courage and faith and wisdom. And today we have a community to rely on. My prayer is that we rely on both. So let's take... Oh, I'm so sorry. I said I would tell the people who had work to do that when it was 8.30, it's 8.35. (laughs) (laughs) So workers... It's 8.35. So then I'm going to end with one last poem that I love. This is from Nikki Giovanni, and and it's um, it's so beautiful because it's it's a poem about believing in in um, believing in ourselves. I take Mastercard. Charge your love to me. I've heard all the stories about how you don't deserve me because I'm so strong and beautiful and wonderful and you could never live up to what you know I should have. But I just want to let you know I take MasterCard. (laughs) 
You can love me as much as your heart can stand, then put the rest on account and pay the interest each month until we get this settled. You see, we modern women, girls, trans do comprehend that we deserve a whole lot more than what is normally being offered, but we're trying to get aligned with the modern world. So, baby, you can love me all you like because you're pre-approved and you don't have to sign on the bottom line. Charge it till we can't take no more. It's the modern way I take MasterCard to see your visa, and I deal with a discovery. But I don't want any American Express, because like the Pointer Sisters say, I need a slow hand. (laughs) (laughs) So let's take a moment to um, sit together. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.